We're looking at Genesis 45 this morning, and we're looking at the great reveal, Joseph's revelation, his impassioned revelation of who he really is to his brothers. Judah's plea to become the substitute slave for Benjamin was the straw that broke the camel's back. It was the thing that uh, caused Joseph to no longer contain his secret identity. So he ordered all of his Egyptian servants to vacate the hall, leaving him alone with his traumatized brothers who had no clue, none, what was to happen next. You just think about that. They didn't want to go to his house anyway. I'll read a text just shortly. They were scared about doing that. And now... The governor of Egypt says to all the Egyptians there, clear the house, get out here. And they leave. You can see him going out as fast as they can. And he's left alone with these brothers. Must have been terrifying to hear Joseph begin to wail. To wail so loudly that the Egyptians in the surrounding environment took notice. Oh, that sounds like the governor's voice there. Why is he wailing? Why is he weeping like that? When he told his brothers, verse 3, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? I think he spoke that in Hebrew. Look at verse 12. You can see for yourself that it is I really, who I, it, is, it is really I who am speaking to you. How would they know that? Other than the fact that he spoke in Hebrew. Prior to this, you remember, he spoke through an Egyptian interpreter, chapter 42, verse 23 so that he could keep his identity, that he was not Hebrew. But now he is speaking to the brothers in their language. And the brothers were speechless and terrorized at Joseph's presence, it says. His presence. Joseph was dressed in the traditional Egyptian garb, complete with eye makeup. You've seen pictures of that. Jared's going to show some of those. Just as a sorrowful woman's entire countenance is affected by tears running through her mascara, Joseph's uninhibited weeping, verse 2, so distorted his appearance that he presented a ghastly sight to his onlooking brothers. Do we have that up, Jared? Okay, getting an idea here. They don't see the dark eyes, but this is a man actually dressed so forth in the Egyptian garb. Joseph might have looked something like that. What about the other picture, Jerry? Whoop, we missed it. So there you get an idea of perhaps the guy there with the, with the staff and the red headdress and so forth, how they probably looked. They had different garb, of course. They had their, uh, their kingly robes that they wore, and they had their warrior robes that they wore. But I'm sure you're familiar with the look like that. But So that's what he looks like to his brothers. And um, they are frightened, and they are skeptical. And so Joseph calls them to come closer to him, verse 4. And though he told them, I am Joseph, verse 3, he sure didn't look like Joseph. 
Remember that Joseph was but 17 years old when his brother sold him as a slave to a caravan heading for Egypt. Now he's 39 years old. How do we come up with that? Well, he was 30 years old when he was promoted as vice regent, chapter 41, verse 46. But now the seven years have passed of the good years of plenty, chapter 41, verse 35. So that makes him 37. Of the five years of drought there are, that are yet to come, verse 11, that means two have already transpired. So 30 plus 7 plus 2, he's 39 years old at the time of his reunion with his brothers. That's a long time since 17. 22 years have passed, which in your family and mine is what? Well, that's time enough for our children to be born and grow up and become adults and get married. Right? 22 years. Add to that that Joseph looks Egyptian in every conceivable way. And on top of that, he is vice regent of all Egypt. This is, this is really um, a tremendous stretch for his brothers to wrap their heads around Joseph's assertion that he is the skinny, scared teenager they sold into slavery nearly a quarter, a quarter century ago. I, I can see where they're having trouble here. So Joseph must begin to give evidence of his identity to his highly frightened and suspicious brothers. He does this by revealing things from his past which only his brothers would know. Verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. First clue here. This is pretty good clue. Who would know that except the brother subject to the treachery? You can be sure that his brothers were not blabbering about this to the neighbors. Oh, we sold our brother to Egypt. No. They had hidden this dark family secret for a very long time. There are family secrets that we all have and we don't tell them. You know, some of them, uh, the black sheeps in the family and all of those kind of things, we keep it to ourselves. Only recently were their consciences pricked and revived because of all the trouble they were experiencing from this Egyptian governor. But then, how does this Egyptian governor know about the sale of their brother into slavery? And remember when he had him at the dinner, he seated them, for what, from the oldest one, doom da doom da doom da doom right down to the youngest at the table? It says they were amazed. Yeah, I'll bet you they were amazed. So the light bulb is beginning to shine. Joseph's claim, I am Joseph, seems more credible than ever. But you know, with, with every ray of light that invades their understanding, there is a, there's a mountain of guilt and fear which emerges. Oh, if, if this is really Joseph, we are in deep, deep trouble. This governor has the power to enslave us and imprison us and even to execute us. We remember that Joseph did have broad and sweeping powers bestowed upon him by Pharaoh. Look at chapter 41, verse 40. You shall be in charge of my palace, says Pharaoh. 
and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or a foot in all of Egypt. That's broad, sweeping powers. Now Joseph's brothers were not there to hear Pharaoh say those things. But they had seen plenty to indicate that Joseph was the man in charge. And that they were at his beck and call for every existence. He had threatened their execution if they did not fetch Benjamin from Canaan to prove their trustworthiness. No wonder they are frightened beyond belief. And now he's saying to them, you know, I'm the guy you sold to the Midianite traders. And they're putting the pieces together. If that's true and he's the governor of the land, we are in serious, serious trouble. So, secondly, Joseph begins to use comforting words to his uh, comfort his distraught brothers. First thing to observe is that Joseph became aware of how his revelation of his identity was not exactly happy news to his brothers, but rather terrifying news. How could it be otherwise? I mean, think about it. By their own admission, they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. And that's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben added, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? We must now give an accounting for his blood. Genesis 42, verse 21 and, 20, and verse 32. I'm sure that these or, or similar thoughts were, were racing through their minds. If this Egyptian governor really is Joseph, then he is alive and not dead. And after the way we treated him, showing him no mercy when he pleaded with us, then we are destined to suffer the full brunt of his anger, which will be just. You know, people of the world have the mindset, you punch me, and I'm going to punch you back. They talk about getting even as though they were well equipped to be judge and jury in matters of grievance or dispute in reality the get even philosophy does not generally work out that way why well instead of the offended party getting even he goes overboard and he leaves no room for the wrath of God to rectify situations I'm going to get even with you yeah and then they go crazy. But I have to say that Joseph's brothers were not, they were not thinking this way. Instead, they were thinking, we deserve anything that comes our way because we did not show mercy to Joseph when, in fear, he pleaded, to, uh, pleaded with us for his very life. And Reuben adds, now we must give an accounting for his blood. Think of how much fear must have gripped their hearts with Joseph's revelation. I am Joseph, your brother. 
the one you sold into Egypt. This was their worst nightmare come true. They think the hammer of doom is about to fall on them. They have no hope of mercy. They have no hope of forgiveness. They have no hope of reconciliation. If this governor is Joseph, we are as good as dead. So what an utter relief and surprise then to hear Joseph say, Now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and no reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all Egypt. Verses 5 through 8. They listen, and they cannot, they cannot believe their own ears. No anger, no threats, no promise of punishment, no retaliation by Joseph, but instead an analysis of what happened, which sounds kind of like a blessing rather than a curse. Could God really have been in their evil motives and behavior that brought all these things to pass? You mean God would put his people through trials and distress with an ulterior motive of salvation? Can good really come out of evil? This is a wonderful text to teach these things. Isn't that Paul's point when he wrote to the church of Rome? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, he doesn't say that all things are good. But he says in all things, God works good out of those things. He goes on. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. He wants many brothers. Those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified or saved. And those he justified, he also glorified. We heard a lot about that with regard to Pastor Tucker's funeral. He's now in a state of glorification. Glorification is the end of mortification, <laughs> death. And now he enters into the time of glory. He goes on, Paul. What then shall we say in response to this, if God is for us, this is what we're going to say. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Romans 8, verse 28 and following. God knows how to work good out of bad. Joseph's brothers are feeling the weight of their past sin towards Joseph. And there was a lot of sin to account for. But Joseph took the high road here. He took the godly road. By delving into the work of God behind the evil done to him. 
He directed the thoughts of his brothers to think in this same higher plane. And at the close of his life, Joseph will again reassure his fearful brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, namely the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, verse 10. So he leaves his brothers with the same thought that he's beginning to share with them now. Because they're thinking, ah, Joseph's dying. Now, now we're going to get it. Now we're going to find out that he's given in his will something terrible to happen to us. So he assures them again, no, no, you, you did mean it for evil, but God brought me here for good. Thirdly, Note that Joseph sends his brothers back to Canaan to retrieve his father's household and their families. Verse 13. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Verse 14 tells us that there was much weeping and embracing. These are tears of joy now, not tears of sorrow and certainly not tears of fear. There's, these are tears of reconciliation. They are not tears of regret. Joseph buried his brother's past sins. And finally, after decades of loss and misinformation, verse 15 tells us they all sat down and talked with one another. There's a family reunion. Finally, after all these many, many years. Well, word finally got to Pharaoh who gave his own decree, verse 17. Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Well, Joseph has already intimated that he's going to give them the land of Goshen, verse 10, located in the eastern part of the Nile Delta, it's still very fertile today. You want to be in a fertile area in, in Egypt. You want to be in the Delta region where the Nile comes down and branches out and goes into the Mediterranean. And that land is all rich. And it's always being watered by that one main river. To speed their journey, Pharaoh sent carts in which to load their belongings. Although Pharaoh promised them all new things, the best of Egypt, verse 21. It was not easy for Jacob to be convinced that Joseph was still alive. I mean, he had lived, think about this, for more than 20 years believing the lie. Believing the lie. But he could not deny the gifts, the carts, the fantastic tale of his sons brought home, which came from Egypt. He had to go see for himself, verse 27. It says the spirit of their father Jacob revived, and finally after Months of testing and anguish as to what might happen to Simeon in prison and Benjamin if he traveled to Egypt. The sunlight of dawn broke through the clouds and Jacob had hope. Verse 28, my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Did the brothers ever set the record straight about their deception? I don't know. But one thing is certain. When the brothers were about to set out on their return from Egypt, Joseph's last words to them were verse 24. Don't quarrel on the way. 
What's he saying to them? Translation. Consider the matter settled. Further discussion will not be profitable. Rejoice in what God has done for you and our Father and do not dwell on the past. Enough is enough. Don't quarrel anymore. Well, you did this. Well, you said that. And I said this. And you, and you wouldn't listen to me. And on and on. Now he says, just end all of that. Stop quarreling. Start rejoicing. Now there are some tremendous lessons here from Joseph's own reveal. Firstly, we should learn that family troubles can cause deep sorrow and weeping until they are resolved. I'll bet you every one of us in our families knows something about this personally. I certainly do. For many, many months, Joseph's identity was hidden from his brothers, but not they from him. No, it was as we studied, chapter 42, verse 8, although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. And I realized that Joseph refrained from revealing his identity quickly because he was testing his brother's character to see if the many years had resulted in a change of heart in how they interacted with one another. How's he going to know that? He hasn't been around them for 20 years. But with that said, there is a danger that what is delayed will be forgotten or intentionally dismissed altogether. That's why God instructs us to deal with issues Quickly, that's his word, quickly. While the matter's fresh in mind and before the devil and his circumstances have a chance to muddy the water with needless complications. Let me read it for you. Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And anyone who says to his brother, Raka, it's Aramaic for empty-headed or scatterbrained, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. You'll have to give an account to the Jewish council. But anyone who says, you fool, is the Greek word moros, from which we get moron. This is worse than just saying empty-headed or forgetful. It's saying you're, you're a person who has no intellectual capabilities whatsoever, and you're really no, no good for society at all. You are a moron. If anyone says to his brother, you fool, he will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, you're involved in worship, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift right there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters. I'm still reading scripture. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge will hand you over to the officer and the officer will throw you into prison. And I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Matthew 5, 22 through 26. So this is kind of some kind of a financial problem that's going on between brothers here. And money often... Isn't that really what happens a lot in a lot of families? It's a problem of money. Someone dies and they start fighting and scrapping over the inheritance. 
Notice that these two adversaries have resorted to name calling. And the names are derisive, not, not derisive. They're com not complimentary. How do things come to this? You fool, you moron, you back and forth they go. They come at by not settling the matter quickly. Paul puts it this way. Each one of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. Don't let the day end, is what he's saying. With you still being angry and at odds with your brother. Don't give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4, 25 through 27. God, boy, he'll take it. He will take it. In Joseph's case, because he had a forgiving heart, the devil had no pry bar to open the old wounds sown by his brothers in years past. But if Joseph had been a more vengeful kind of man, the outcome would not have been so amicable. I will say this, however, by his delay in resolving the issues with his brothers, he also delayed reconciliation and restoration of his own joy. Instead, we are told that he repeatedly had to sneak away to weep in his private chamber because he couldn't contain himself anymore. He, and he prolonged that by not quickly revealing who he was and solving the problem. So the principle here is settle disputes quickly. You let them go and they go underground or they go in your heart and they will fester there. And what will grow out of that is what the scripture calls a, is a bitter root. A bitter root. Which means you will become bitter. You will become bitter. Product of your own anger. Secondly, we need to learn that comfort for distressed souls is found in spiritual truths, not empty platitudes. Watch this as Christians when you're counseling people. When Joseph saw that his brothers were in distress after they knew who he was, he did not attempt to soothe their conscience with a thick dose of worldly wisdom. He did not say, ah, oh, brothers, that's all right. It all came out clean in the wash. Nor did he say to them, well, brothers will be brothers. It's just normal that we would have our differences. That's the way the world speaks. He does none of this. Instead, he makes them face their sin. I am your brother, the one you sold into Egypt. Reconciliation does not, indeed it cannot, sweep evil under the carpet as though it did not exist. No, you brothers of mine did an evil thing. You sold me as a slave to pagan Egyptians of all people. And there's no getting around that. You did that. But Joseph does not leave them there to wallow in their sin. He does not, as it were, rub their face in it. Instead, it is but a quick acknowledgement of sin, followed by the spiritual truths the brothers likely have overlooked, namely, that it was God, let me read it for you, who sent me ahead of you 
to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. Verse 7. Wow. Wow. Now there's something to meditate on. There's something to think about. Don't keep beating yourselves down because of your sin, but instead rejoice that God can and did override your evil intent for His glory and your good. Think on that. Think those thoughts. I would say to you that when you feel defeated because of something sinful that you said or something sinful that you did, stop, think, Recall the power and the grace of God to forgive and restore, to still accomplish good, though you meant it for evil. That's what you need to think of. Oh, and one more thing, verse 24. Don't quarrel on the way. What's that? It's drop the matter. Not only with the person with whom you have had the disagreement, but in your own thinking. Don't keep igniting. Don't keep fanning the old flame. Learn to let your past go. Solomon puts it this way. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. And patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit. For anger resides in the lap of fools. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 89. He's saying, you know, it's a foolish thing to just keep mulling this over in your mind. Oh, if I only, I wish I would I, I'm, I didn't, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. And on and on we go. Again, he says, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam. So drop the matter before dispute breaks out. Proverbs 17, verse 14. You know, beginning things. You got your finger in a hole in the dam. Do you know that when you pull that finger out of there, <laughs> what's going to happen? Don't even start. Oh, one more he says in Proverbs 15, verse 30. A cheerful look brings joy to the heart. And good news gives health to the bones. We should be prominent promulgating the good news of the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. A lot of bad things happened to Joseph as a result of his brother's jealousy. There's no denying that. But if he had not gotten past those things, if he had made those sins the foundation of the relationship with his brothers, rather than seeing the grace of God, then the rift in his family would have run long and deep. So there's a treasure trove in the scriptures, which if you take the time to mine them out, you'll find peace for your soul, whatever it is that is disturbing you or causing heartache between you and another brother in Christ. Get into the scriptures and see what to do with your jealousy or your anger or your bitterness. All you need is a concordance and go through the scriptures and see what God, how he directs you out of that quagmire into the joy of his peace. 
Thirdly, we need to learn that we are happiest in life when our conscience does not condemn us. When our conscience does not condemn us. Twenty years had passed since Joseph's brother sold him into slavery, but when trouble came their way because of the governor's accusations, firstly, you are spies, secondly, you're a bunch of thieves, immediately, immediately, their conscience went to work to try to find a reason why these things were happening to them. And the conclusion they came to was, Surely we are being punished because of our brother, chapter 42 and verse 21. And as a result, they began to see in every room shadows of assassins. Their conscience bothering them. So everything that happens to them, we're going to get it. They're out to get us. This governor is going to kill us. In returning from their first trip to Egypt, they stopped along the way, and when one opened his sack of grain, there was the silver money. What does the scripture say? Their hearts sank, and they turned to one another, and they said, This, what is this that God has done to us? Chapter 42, verse 28. They looked at the silver, and they said, We are in deep trouble. When they finally reached the homestead where Jacob was, they all discovered their silver coins in their sacks. And what do we read? When they and their fathers saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Chapter 42, verse 35. When they finally returned to Egypt on the second journey, and Joseph's steward took all the brothers to his house for dinner, we read... Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, we were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us. He's going to overpower us. He's going to seize us as slaves. He's going to take our donkeys. Like he needed their donkeys. Think about that. Chapter 43, verse 17 and and the context says they ran to the steward to spill the beans on how each found his money returned in the sack, saying, We don't know who put the silver back in our sacks. 43, verse 22. <clears throat> now, what I want you to observe, there is absolutely nothing fearful in itself, in itself, about finding silver coins in a sack of grain. Nothing fearful about that. There is nothing fearful in itself about being invited to dinner by the governor of the land. These are not fears men experience from real danger. A grizzly bear bearing down on you at your favorite fishing hole is justifiable fear because you are an intruder into his salmon sanctuary. Yeah, get afraid about that. A man holding you hostage with a gun to your head at the local bank, which he is robbing, is someone to be afraid of. These are fearful items in and of themselves, 
And it's sane to be afraid in those situations. But the fears Joseph's brothers experienced had to do with a guilty conscience for past and unresolved sins. Their guilty conscience produced terrors that would otherwise have been dismissed. Job told his friends, I will maintain my righteousness and let, never let go of it. My conscience will not reproach me as long as I live. Job 27 verse 6. He's saying that as long as he's living a righteous life, his, con his conscience can't do anything to him. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you might fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these, and so they have shipwrecked their faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 18 and 19. Faith in God and having a clear conscience, which he calls good, dispels, dispels subjective fears. Not until Joseph's brothers sensed that he had forgiven them did they begin to relax in his presence. So the lesson to learn here is deal with the guilt and the sinful conduct that is behind that. Give your conscience a rest. Knowing that you did the right thing. Maybe you did a bad thing, and so your conscience won't let go of that. But if you set the matter right, you'll be able to sleep at night again. The reason people have all, a lot of fears is because they're carrying a lot of baggage with them. They haven't righted the wrongs in their lives. They haven't called that brother up on the phone and said, you know, I said some pretty nasty things to you the other day or, you know, a year ago, or whatever it was, and I'm sorry. I got a call from a person in my Pennsylvania church. It's, well, it's probably been 10, 15 years now. I've been out here 35, but it was 10 or 15 years since I was out here. He called me from church. He says, do you know who this is? I said, I don't have a clue. So he identified himself, and he said, I want you to know I gave you a rough time as my pastor. And I'm sorry. And I have found out since that what you taught was the truth of God's word. And I just wanted you to know it. I hadn't even thought about it for 15, 20 years. You know? But it sure was a great relief. And we were reconciled. And what a joy that was. Lesson four. The best. Listen to this. The best that the world has to offer you is rubbish compared to having Christ. When Pharaoh heard about Joseph's brothers, he said to Joseph, bring your father, bring your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. Chapter 45, verse 18. Y'all come down and I'll make sure that it's going to be paradise for you. In later years, another Israelite by the name of Moses was 
adopted and raised in Pharaoh's own palace by his daughter. And he received the best of the land of Egypt. Placial dwelling in which to reside, education in the language and culture and science of Egyptian society, wealth beyond comprehension, position of power and unparalleled authority as the adopted prince of Pharaoh. All this while his own blood relatives groaned under the pain of the taskmaster's whips who forced them to build the monument tombs and cities of the pharaohs. As an adult observer, he could no longer sit by indifferent and complacent to the plight of his people. The Bible says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, it took a while, but when he had grown up, he refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be ill-treated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the king's anger he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Hebrews 11, 24 and following. The world thinks Moses a fool to give up so much. And in so doing, suffer disgrace and ill treatment and poverty with the people of God, which he did till he fled. But God's word says that the pleasures of sin are only for a short time. Then what? Missionary and martyr for the faith, Jim Elliott, killed by the Aka Indians in Ecuador in the mid-50s, said it this way. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Where did he get that? Where did Jim Elliott get that kind of thought? It's wonderful. People put it on their plaques. You can go into a Christian bookstore today and you can find that written on a plaque. They put it in their homes. They embroider it on their quilts. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Here's where he got it. Paul says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things, and I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Philippians 3, verse 7 and following. There's something better 
folks than the great riches of Egypt, the great wealth that the world can provide for us, the luxuries, the pleasures of sin, to know Christ and his righteousness and have the assurance of being his child. There's an old hymn. They don't sing it anymore. I have a mansion over the hilltop. We don't sing it anymore because the word mansion isn't found there in the Greek. It's, I have a dwelling place, an abode. But when you look at the context and you see what Jesus is saying is this. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. There are many apartments. So when you get to glory, guess where you're going to live? Not in your private little cottage over here in the hill somewhere, out in the woods somewhere. You're going to live in the apartment house of the God of the universe where you can be close to him, where he can be close to you, where as a family we're all one in Christ. If you don't have that joy, you don't have any joy because riches and power and money and stock market all of that is destined to perish. Only what is found in Christ will accompany you to glory. Father, I pray for us today. Help us to get our perspective right. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your dad, come on down here. Boy, I'll give him the best of Egypt. He can live off the fat of the land. Won't have to work a day in his life. He can just clip his coupons and enjoy retirement. He already had better than that. He had Christ Jesus like Moses as his Savior, as his Lord and King. And nothing Pharaoh could offer could best that. Help us to see that. Whatever our problems are, there's a glorious, glorious future awaiting us. And not only awaiting us, but right now, because in Christ we have joy and peace and salvation, which the world is struggling to find in all of their wealth and power and struggling. And they think they'll be better off if they can just reach the next plateau. And they get there and they find out, oh, it's not what I thought. It's not as wonderful as I had anticipated. And that's because the things of this life are just vanity. It's all, they're all part of Vanity Fair. They're just baubles, trinkets. The real prize, the real gem is to know Christ Jesus and God the Father through him. If any is here today that is without Christ, May you find them. May you turn them away from lesser things. May they come at the foot of the cross and claim you as Savior and Lord. And I pray that you'll make them your child this day. For your honor, Lord, we pray that because every time a, a saint, a child becomes a saint of God, it says in the scripture, the angels rejoice over just one, one soul that comes to know Christ as Savior. And that one soul could be here this morning. 
and they could stir heaven's joys by coming to Christ. Bless these truths to our heart. Wherever the gospel goes forth, we pray that you will honor your word and save whom you will. In Christ's name, amen. Our closing hymn is from the Brown Hymnal, number 539. 539 in the Brown Hymnal. Let's stand.